Join us for a discussion with psychologist Connie Zweig on the art of becoming an elder, this crucial rite of passage which can open us to elder wisdom, to a deeper life, to mature longing, and to inner soul work. She explores the benefits of spiritual practice and the traps that can still emerge at this life stage. And she talks about preparing for life completion, working with our inner ageist, and developing to the fullness of our potential, even as our bodies may decline. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh and our co-host is John Dupuy. And today we are both delighted and I'm particularly delighted to introduce Connie Zweig, who has played many roles in my life. First of all, as an editor of one of the first books that my late wife, France, and I edited together called uh, Paths Beyond Ego. But before that, Connie had been a journalist. And after that, she moved through additional roles. This is a woman who's had many incarnations in her lifetime or many lifetimes in her incarnation, whatever way you want to look at it. She subsequently moved on to become a psychotherapist with an orientation towards depth therapy and Jungian psychology. And more recently, she's let go of that practice and has moved into a phase of writing and leading people into the exploration of elderhood. She's also a prolific author, and she's known as the shadow expert, <laughs> and wrote books, Meeting the Shadow, Romancing the Shadow, and my favorite, Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality. But most recently, she's completed the book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. It's a beautiful exposition of both the challenges and opportunities and importance of this transition in our contemporary society, because more of us are living longer than in any time in human history. We just have an extended lifespan that is quite beyond the comprehension of previous generations. We also, at least in the West, not in the underdeveloped world by any means, have resources and medical support, etc., that can add not just lifespan, but health span. And with that comes the possibility of more levels and new levels of maturity and hopefully wisdom and a transmission of that to other generations. So Connie has been researching this. She's been interviewing people. She's become a real master of this field. And what a gift it is to have her expertise and have her herself with us. So Connie, welcome. Thank you, Roger. All back to you. <laughs> well, thanks so much. So as I said, you've been exploring this topic very deeply for quite a number of years now. And also, as you described in your book, trying to learn from others how best to navigate this transition yourself and the move to elderhood. So out of all the interviews you've done and all the people you've talked to and the reading and research and contemplation, what's most surprised you as you've gotten into this topic? What's most surprised me is how little is known about it. Mm. There isn't even a name for this new stage of life that you described. There isn't much language for it. People use the term senior, but, you know, everyone becomes a senior in our society with a Medicare birthday. That doesn't reflect development. It doesn't reflect the internal stage of awareness of a person. It's just the chronological age. So it surprises me that when I began the research, I couldn't find any books about the unconscious process of living beyond midlife and stepping into late life. I couldn't find a depth psychological approach to age. And the books about spirituality and late life mostly focused on one tradition. There are books about Buddhism and books about Christianity and so forth. 
but there wasn't a sort of non-denominational, all-embracing approach to contemplative practice, which is really what is prescribed in all the perennial traditions. They all talk about it. But there wasn't a book that kind of held the big picture of that. So that's kind of been my surprise, and I didn't expect to write another book, but it, it ended up calling to me for that reason. Uh, listening to your talks, and again, I'm experiencing what you're talking about, which is great. But when I was growing up, and I was going through these huge life changes, I was having my initial spiritual experiences and awakenings when I was like 11 or 12, and I didn't have any elders that I could turn to, much less people that we named that. And, you know, my parents were lovely people and they were a great model for ethics and being loving. And they gave me a lot of gifts along those lines, but there were no old people that I could turn to when I found God when I was 11 and my mind was blown and I was Catholic, you know? So, you know, not only do we need to name the stage, I think those of us who are moving into this stage need to move into elderhood. And I don't know if we haven't done the work preparing us if we're not just a bunch of aging adolescents, what is the requirement to move into elderhood in a soul-centric sort of way? You know, there are many reports, if you look for them, of children having spiritual experiences. And there's no context for that in our culture. There's not only no modeling, but there's no education. There's no framework for that. And as we continue to go through the lifespan and have spiritual experiences, those of us who do, Often what happens is we fall into the guru trip and kind of get in trouble, meet darkness on the path, project onto other human beings and find spiritual communities and then end up disillusioned. And there's no guidance for that either. So, you know, this is another issue that's not so much what this new book is about, but it's really important I interviewed a number of spiritual teachers in the book from all different traditions. And one of the beautiful ones is Father Thomas Keating, who describes his own awakening process and really gives a spiritual life review of his inner journey to me. And it ended up being right before he died. And so it's really precious to me that that is in the book. His father didn't recognize what was happening to him like you. He had no family support. He had no social support for it. He went into the monastery and he found that even people in the monastery didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. So this is a dilemma, John. I hear you. There's so much we could cover here, particularly since you've taken this exploration of eldering into topics, as you said, the unconscious, working with the shadow, so many dimensions. But let me just ask you to step back and tell us, out of your research and interviews, what are the most important things that stand out for you? What are the big takeaways? You know, I found myself in my late 60s sitting in a restaurant, my favorite vegan restaurant, and I'm not a vegan. And but I was enjoying this lentil loaf. And this woman came and sat next to me who was quite old and obviously poor. Her clothes were tattered and her hands were dirty. And she was asking for samples, for free samples of the food. And because I'm so used to doing shadow work and attuning to my own inner, inner dialogue to kind of catch what's coming up from my unconscious, I started to notice what I was saying to myself. She's so old. She doesn't belong in this restaurant. She can't afford this restaurant. I wonder if she's homeless. As I listened to myself, I was horrified. And I realized that there was a part of me that was ageist and classist, but that's not what we're talking about now. But there was a part of me that was ageist it was a shock because I was in Berkeley in the late 60s and I fought every ism on the planet, but I had never thought about ageism. And I recognized in that moment and in the weeks afterward that I had internalized ageism from the culture, from the media when we were growing up. Remember All in the Family and how Archie Bunker patronized his wife from the movie portrayals of older people, from my father's condescending comments. 
I had internalized ageism and that was really disturbing to me. And I recognized that if that were true for me, it was probably true for millions of people. And so I've named that a shadow character, the inner ageist. And I've described it as the first inner obstacle to overcome on the way to conscious aging. Because the inner ageist carries our denial of age and denial of the value of age. The inner ageist worships youth and health and productivity and image. And it's that part of us that is going to block our transition to become an elder. It's one of those inner obstacles. So for me, I woke up to it in myself. And then I began to study internalized ageism. And I found out, and this was totally shocking, Roger. I found out that there's a psychologist at Yale named Becca Levy, who has spent her whole career studying internalized ageism and its effects on our health. And she has found that it has effects on cardiac health, on cognitive health, memory, on will to live, on quality of life in retirement, even on longevity. So then I recognized that I really had to work with my inner ageist and that that was one of the important messages that I wanted to transmit. And certainly one of the things I took away from your book is that attitudes towards aging may partly be self-fulfilling prophecies, also just very powerful in the shaping of not only our expectations for ourselves and others, but of ways we live those out and bring them to fulfillment in painful ways. Yes. If we believe aging is only decline, and that's the image that we carry throughout the lifespan, right? Then young is good and old is bad. So we lose our connection to older adults and we begin to feel a lack of self-acceptance in ourselves as we age, maybe shame, maybe depression, because then we're projecting the target of ageism against ourselves. And it seems that there are some special challenges in our own time. There is a sense, and I don't know how much the research bears this out, that in earlier times when, when reaching old age was a relative rarity, that elders were venerated more. There was also the sense of them equating them with wisdom, though the contemporary research hasn't necessarily borne that out so well. And yet in our own time, it seems that there are additional challenges around aging. There are, for example, the isolation that comes with suburban living, the physical isolation. There are also new financial challenges. One can't just remain, in, one doesn't remain in the family and on the farm. One, these days, you know, we are facing an epidemic of elder poverty. It's going to be a tidal wave in this country with our shredded social safety net. But there's also something deeper, it seems, and that is that with the rapidly accelerating increases in technology, and particularly communication and educational technology, we are shifting, and I'm going to use a couple of big words here, but they're important ones, words from the anthropologist Margaret Mead, we're shifting from what was traditionally a post-figurative culture in which the source of knowledge about the world was the elders to what she called a prefigurative culture in which the younger generations know more than the elders and the elders have a hell of a time keeping up. So these seem like new challenges in some ways feeding into the stereotypes you're working with and sometimes bringing new dimensions to the challenge. I'd love to hear you talk about this. Yeah, the social and economic circumstances are really challenging. I think that in the baby boom generation, there is going to be, or there already is a lot of poverty. And it's especially, it's the worst among women of color. There's also an epidemic of substance abuse and alcoholism. And what I'm trying to say, and the challenge with technology, which is, as you said, the source of information now, that, let me just make an aside about that. There's a lot of intergenerational mentoring going on now. And when we think about that, we think it's old to young mentoring. But actually, there's a lot of young to old mentoring going on in technology, in the workplace, in personal relationships. Before this book came out, I had no idea 
how I was going to be able to promote it because I really am not a fan of social media and all that stuff. I had a high school girl from across the street, she's 17, come and teach me. And she got me through this click phobia to the point where I'm just thriving now online. So that kind of mentoring exchange is new because I don't think that that, and you know, we can have ageism against young people too. It's not only ageism against old. So I think that there are gifts being exchanged now that are unprecedented. But what I wanted to say about the circumstances of our age is that regardless of our circumstances, we can do inner work and we can cultivate emotional development and heal our relationships and give and, for, give and receive forgiveness regardless of our economic circumstances. We can do contemplative practice and sit in meditation or prayer or chanting or mindfulness, regardless of our economic circumstances. So what I'm trying to describe, because there are many, many books on aging from the outside in and all the demographic issues and financial issues, I'm trying to describe aging from the inside out. And how do we take advantage of this stage of life internally to cultivate another stage of awareness? And I'm calling that role to soul. I borrowed that term from Ramdas, the spiritual teacher who used that phrase many decades ago, and it just stuck with me. And it means that we have the opportunity to shift our identity from what we do or what we achieve or what we don't achieve, how much money we have or how much we don't have or how we look or how we don't look to our deep, essential spiritual nature. And that's available to every human being, regardless of circumstance. We know from humanistic and transpersonal psychology that most people need a solid economic foundation and they need their survival needs to be met before they take on personal development. And I understand that. But what I'm saying is that we have an opportunity now, late in life, and for some people in the context of impending death, to actually turn within and actually experience what we call pure awareness or transcendence or silent mind, silent vastness, whatever we call it, emptiness. We have a human nervous system. We have that ability. And so if we do that enough, if we live enough in that state, we can shift from role to soul and release our past identities and really discover who we are now. So you're saying it's not too late, even though you may have grown up in a way or in a culture that didn't support inner spiritual development, that at this latter stage in life, we can turn it on and we can... Yeah, I'm saying that, you know, with the democratization of spiritual practices that used to be secret and hidden, they're all out in the open now. And so whatever lineage you're attracted to, any lineage, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, mystical Judaism, Vedanta, Christianity, whatever lineage, Sufism, you can find the spiritual practices there now. And there are many in my book. I wanted to kind of make it easy for people to offer them. If you want to meditate to reduce stress, here's some practices. If you want to meditate to move into a certain stage of awakening, here are the practices. But people can find these through friends and communities and clergy. And it's independent of age. It's independent of age. You know, I started doing practices in my 20s. And I would say, you know, Ken Wilber has written about spiritual bypass. I would say I bypassed my psychological work because I was having spiritual experiences. But then I went back in my 40s to pick that up and kind of complete my emotional unfinished business, that's available to people now. And so is picking up a spiritual practice. It might be one they learned when they were young and had to drop because they were too busy. And it might be a totally new one that fits better who they are now. It sounds like you've been, you know, you had awakening, you had experiences of God or spirit uh, from a very young age. And this is very interesting to me because I write and talk and hopefully live the idea of practice, integral practice on a daily basis. And what do you do? I'd love to ask Roger this at some point too. Uh, what do you do currently 
to maintain your conscious contact with God, if you will, to borrow from the AA language? And how has that changed since you were, say, in your 20s? And what are you doing now? And I realize you're also a very learned person. You're still giving and teaching, and God is coming through in the form of wisdom and knowledge when we're having this conversation. But how do you do that on, on a daily basis at this point, and how has that changed? Well, Roger knows a bit about this. I started um, in my 20s with Transcendental Meditation. Actually, I was 19. I didn't start for any spiritual reason. I wanted to date a guy, and he would not go out with me unless I meditated. So who knew that that would change my life at age 19 (laughs) and that I would turn east and never look back? So for me, I would say my two lineages are depth psychology with Carl Jung and Vedanta. And so I have taken on many practices that are rooted in India and in teachings of Vedanta. I'm not a devotional person. I'm not guru oriented. I'm a yani, an explorer of knowledge. And many of my spiritual experiences have been about Well, let's see, what can I tell you? My first opening when I was in my 20s, John, I was on a meditation retreat and came downstairs and everyone I looked at was God. And there were just tears running down my face. My heart chakra was blasted open and I saw the divine in everyone, everywhere. And different things have unfolded since then. I've had a, I've worked with a satsang who shares a lot of my lineage. And I was working with someone a few years ago who kept saying, no matter what I said, he said to me, that's a concept. That's a concept. That's a concept. And after a few minutes, my mind stopped and it emptied out onto the floor. And I sat there looking at the contents of my mind, recognizing I was still alive but my mind was, my, my head was hollow. My mind was empty. My eyes were open. And that lasted for a few days. And since then, there's been an experience of witnessing or observing the thoughts, the contents of consciousness, rather than identifying with the contents of consciousness. And I think this is part of what freed me up to let go of my books. You know, there's been a real shift that I'm no longer kind of living through the ego mind. And yet, as you said, all this material comes through me, but I'm not that. Our most recent teacher, my husband and I, has the Kundalini lineage from India, and she she lives in Tennessee, and she has taught us practices to move the Kundalini through blocks, which has really been a fantastic journey especially for my husband, has really opened things up for him. So, you know, it's been 50 years of practices. And I would say Roger's beautiful wife, Frances, said something to me in our interview for my book. I said to her, what are you practicing now? And she said, I'm practicing gratitude. And I, that's how I feel now. I feel like that's my primary practice now. Even though I sit for an hour a day, I feel like gratitude is expanding and expanding and expanding. Mm, Beautiful. (laughs) Just sitting and delighting in that. (laughs) I should say that that has also been a major practice since on the day my wife died, just shortly before she died, someone asked her, uh, well, what, what is your spiritual practice? And she said, I'm practicing gratitude. And She'd said that a lot of times before, but since it was one of the last things she said, it went in. And it didn't take yeah. me many mornings of waking up to realize I could go, oh, poor me, I'm alone, Francis died. Or I could practice gratitude. I have a roof over my head, I have food, I have friends, I have resources, et cetera, et cetera. And it, you know, didn't remove the guilt entirely by, I'm sorry, the guilt. <laughs> I didn't remove the grief entirely. Right. But it certainly did alleviate the, the pain. So thank you for mentioning gratitude. And gratitude has been a very important flower of your own shifting into elderhood. And that raises the question of you're pointing to a possibility with your book, Being a Work of Age. You're pointing to the possibilities that are 
available to us in this new stage that in the West, anyway, a majority of people may reach. And so what's your vision of that possibility? What, what can we become as elders? I think we're already becoming. So there are people who are, who are not going to become elders, right? There are people who are emotionally closed down and not open to inner work or emotional repair or spiritual repair. They're not open to it. And they live with regret. They live even with bitterness. And so those people are, you know, going to struggle emotionally and perhaps spiritually as they prepare to leave us. And then there are people who are doing psychological work and focused on repairing family relationships and focused on um, maybe giving and receiving forgiveness, who will have a little bit more open-heartedness and maybe move to a different emotional line of development. There are people who are activists in the world. There are climate activists now who are elders, who are engaged with the youth climate movement and who are doing their activism differently than they did as, you know, midlife heroic doers. They're doing their activism. And what I mean by that is they're, they're doing their activism with a long view in mind, the long view that comes with a long life, less ego attachment to the agenda of what they think should happen, less right and wrong, black and white thinking, you know, less enemy making, maybe more fueled by compassion than by anger. So there are elder activists in all kinds of arenas now, in voting rights and democracy, in racism and gun control, all kinds of social movements. And as I said, there are earth elders. And then there are spiritual elders, you know, and that's just kind of a different silo in our culture. There are people who are teaching contemplative practices and making that the center of their lives. And you both know that's happening. I don't know what kind of scale it's happening on, but in our world, we come across these folks all the time who are kind of prioritizing spiritual practice. And that's what they're passing on. That's the kind of wisdom that they're, that they're transmitting. I had an experience last weekend with my 10-year-old grandson, and we had a few hours alone. It was a rare opportunity because his mother gave me a task, what I was supposed to do with him. But I ended up sitting still next to him on the couch and going into kind of a silent state. And he didn't know I was doing this, but I watched him absorb the stillness from my body. And I watched him settle down and I kind of visualized that I was a big shade tree and I was giving him shade and stillness. And this kid lives in a very chaotic, difficult household. And I watched him settle down and I felt like I was transmitting Again, there was no content, but I was transmitting a state and the state was still and I was just radiating a state. And I could tell that he took it into his little body and calmed down. And then the conversation changed and we had a different kind of conversation. So, you know, becoming an elder, I realized after I wrote the book that it is a rite of passage. The book is a rite of passage because if we start the book not knowing much about aging consciously or the shadow or even spirituality, and we really go through it step by step, we will cross a number of thresholds. It's like a rite of passage to become an elder. And it worked that way for me. And I'm now getting feedback from all kinds of people. And it's it's just really, it's been really gratifying. So because there is no rite of passage in our society to become an elder, we don't even know what it is, right? We don't really know what that means. I'm trying to describe it to you in different frameworks because our development to become an elder isn't global. We don't all become master composers, right? Or master mathematicians. But let's talk about creativity too. But there is a way in which becoming an elder is a developmental process, and it's possible for everyone if you're open 
to actually doing this inner work. You're pointing to a developmental process here, and you're pointing to the possibility of facilitating, supporting, working with that process by turning attention inward, paying attention to our inner life. And yet there's another challenge that isn't unique to our times, but is probably exacerbated in our own times, which may make this more difficult. First, as a culture, we have an interior blindness. We're so externally focused. It seems like that's increased with the advent of technology and the uh, incredible toys and trinkets that technology offers us. Second is we're not just introspection, introspectively blind, we are developmentally blind. As a culture, we don't know about adult development. If I had to pick the one thing that I think is the most important contribution in psychology of the last 50 years, I'd say it's that we now have some maps of, of adult psychological development, but they're known only in a small part of academia. Even in academia, only a little part. It's just not part of our cultural awareness yet. And you're trying to, one of the things you're trying to do is bring this idea into the culture. And it's a challenge. You're facing a lot of not knowing there. It is a challenge. And I know from 30 years in clinical practice and all these hundreds of people I'm talking to about the book, that there is a a whisper inside of people. There is a restless longing inside of people for something more. And they may not have an intellectual frame for it, stages of adult development, but they know there's, there's an intuitive knowing that there's something more and that they may have missed out on it. And so I'm trying to speak to that. I'm trying to speak to that part of us that, you know, people may frame it as I want to do more or I want to contribute more rather than I want to be more. But again, this is the shadow character that I call the doer. It's the part of us that identifies with achievement and success and productivity. And as we retire and grow older and those roles fall away, then this door opens to ask again, who am I? You know, the timeless spiritual question, who am I? And almost everyone I've spoken to is asking that question in some way. So even without that psychological framework, people sense something. And I'm trying to speak to that. Hey, Connie, we, you know, I'm, I'm conscious we're not going to have you as long as we normally get to have people. And there was a question I wanted to get through to you. And it goes back to the title of your latest book, From Role to Soul. And this is a question that's really fascinated me. And I've looked at it intellectually, and I've looked at it experientially, and I've kind of come to my own understanding, but I would like to know, what are you exactly talking about when you say soul? What is the soul? It's so funny. I don't want to define that for people. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to do is describe a state. And this state, you know, this shift in identity from role to soul, when we can identify with our spiritual nature, instead of our doing, as I was just talking about, or our appearance, or our success, if we can identify with our spiritual nature, that's the beginning of the path. That's not the end. You know, that's, that's an initial stage of advanced human development that I'm describing. But it opens the awareness to the further stages. So for me, And again, you know, John, it's this tension between my two lineages, because for Jung, soul means one thing, and for Vedanta, soul means another thing. And for me, I'm, I'm trying not to get hung up on the language and just give people a phrase that's intuitively resonant for them. Oh, role to soul. Okay, that means... I'm not my roles. I'm not a CEO. That's not who I really am. I'm not the shadow expert. That's not who I really am. I'm not a mom. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a salesperson. That's not who I really am. That's fleeting. And it's over now. And if I hold on to that, 
I'm really going to suffer. So who am I now? And what we see, you know, is in our culture, as Roger was saying, people begin to transfer their identity to their next doing. I'm a volunteer, or I'm starting, I'm an entrepreneur now, or I'm a grandmother, right? And so their identity just shifts roles. And my point is that in midlife, when we ask, who am I? It's appropriate to find a new role or find a new spouse or find a new geographical location. But now that doesn't do it. It doesn't meet our deeper needs and it doesn't allow us to really prepare for life completion. So if we can admit to ourselves that we're preparing for life completion, it will allow us to let go of these roles, these superficial identities and find some kind of a practice that helps us cultivate a different state, a different state of mind, and hopefully a different stage of awareness. And, and Connie, do you, in general, generally speaking, do you find it's more difficult? I mean, you've worked with hundreds of people over the last several decades, more difficult for the masculine psychology or for men to move from this, I am what I do, I'm a doer, to being, that it is for the feminine psyche or is it equally challenging? You know, I have not focused in my writing or research on gender. I get asked this question a lot and it's not my focus. What I can tell you anecdotally, just in my own experience with the people I'm working with, is that women are having a hard time letting go of image and all the anti-aging messaging yeah. I mean, I just met a 40-year-old woman who had Botox. The anti-aging messaging is very, very hard on women and their relationship to their bodies and their looks. But, you know, they're very high-powered career women in our culture now, millions of them, who are also having a hard time letting go of career roles, Right. Men, I would say the big identity is provider. And so men struggle with that in a way that, you know, who am I if I'm not a provider? And there's a terrible sense of uselessness. And I actually have a tell the story of a shadow character called the useless retiree, because this man had internalized that image from his grandfather and his father, and he wouldn't retire. He was 75. He was totally exhausted. He wouldn't retire. And it wasn't a financial issue because he didn't want to be useless. So that fear, you know, that was terrifying for him. But for me to divide this by gender just kind of feels like stereotyping. And I, I just resist it. I had that problem as a youth feeling useless. It's like, what the hell good am I? You know, what am I good for? You know, do I have anything to contribute or not? So that may be a question that follows us throughout our yeah. lives. Yeah. Connie, you spoke of the calling that you're finding in the people you're talking to, this sense of a call to be something more. I'm curious how to hold that. I'm trying trying to understand it for myself. Because one of the things that has really struck me in reading, studying, for example, Abraham Maslow, one of the great psychologists of the last century, his discussion of motivation, he pointed out, you know, that we have the usual survival motives, which everyone knows about. And then we have the social motives and self, beyond that self-esteem. And beyond that, he postulated self-actualization, the need to become and do what we can to fulfill our potentials and possibilities. And beyond that, in his later life, he pointed to self-transcendence, the possibility of that all of us uh, have some pull towards being and uh, recognizing and becoming something beyond our little personas and personality and egos. And that feels really important because he also pointed out something terribly important that, that if, you know, we know if we don't get enough food, if we don't satisfy the need for hunger, we're in trouble. But he pointed out that if we don't satisfy these higher desires too, to actualize, to transcend, we also suffer. But he called them metapathologies because they're more subtle. And our culture, in addition to its introspective blindness, doesn't recognize 
either these higher motives or the pathologies that result when we don't fulfill them. So I'm wondering, I'm trying to understand, do you see this calling that people are feeling to be something more or to, re- to maybe to let go more or to, to become what they can be as elders? Do you see that as as a kind of self-actualization, self-transcendence? Do you see, see it's something unique to this age? How do, you, how do you understand that? I think it's really individual, Roger. Mm. So there are people, you know, the book you held up, Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality, talks about holy longing. Yeah, love that title, by the way. That's beautiful. Thank you. It's from the poem by Goethe. So for some people, this holy longing is a yearning for ego transcendence. You know, just as you explored in Paths Beyond Ego, Roger. And that longing for ego transcendence carries them into, you know, the spiritual world. But for other people, let's say people who are more extroverted, you know, you were kind of commenting on the culture, Roger. I think some of it is typology. The culture is very thinking, extroverted and thinking and sensation. It's not very feeling and intuitive, right? So for individuals who share that typology, there is this longing to connect with a tribe. They want community and that's their priority, you know? Or there is this longing to be creative. If they're more introverted, perhaps there's this longing to be creative and find self-expression in some kind of a new modality. I mean, I've been reading about people who in their 70s, 80s, and 90s are outperforming young people in the creative arts. I mean, becoming composers and painters and artists of all kinds, sculptors, and famous people who I didn't even know about, actually, who hadn't started expressing their arts until really late in life. Some of it is about individual differences and the way that that longing shows up and the object it falls on, you know. And I, I used to so love the work of Marion Woodman. She was a Jungian analyst who wrote about eating disorders. But she described that longing as being projected onto food. And it was such a clear description for me of food addiction. And Jung talked about spirit being projected onto spirits as alcohol, as the source of alcoholism, that that's what's going to fill me up, that that's what's going to give me a connection to God. That's what's going to be the divine object for me. And if I take it inside, then I'll be full. And so there are these pathological versions of this too, like detours, because it's not directed towards spiritual practice and ego transcendence in those cases. But again, this is so individual and depends on individual predispositions and preferences. And I would say that, you know, most of the people I'm meeting in the conscious aging world have some kind of religious or spiritual orientation, but it may not be mystical. It may not be about their own direct mystical experience. And, you know, so I don't know if I'm answering your question, Roger, but I'm kind of meandering around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned that there may be this calling, spiritual calling, but not necessarily mystical. And yet there is this recognition or recent recognition in the literature on aging of uh, what's called gerotranscendence, this spontaneous movement towards a, a love bigger perspective, a transcendent perspective, and maybe you can say more about it. I'd love to hear what you're finding about that too. Yeah, there's a natural kind of sense of connection to something larger as people age that happens for some people. Again, if you're not emotionally closed down, if you're not psychologically kind of derailed, you can get to this stage that is about, and I think it overlaps with Roll to Soul. You know, it's a Swedish gerontologist, Lars Tornström, who coined this term. And it's really about feeling purpose in connecting to something larger. 
feeling service to that something larger to all living beings. And so there's less of a sense of isolation in the ego and powerlessness in the separation. There's more of a sense of opening and expansion and connection that happens naturally. And what he's saying is that that arises in many people, you know, with a sense of generosity, just naturally. Hmm. Yeah. Let's see. I have a couple of things, but John, you uh, you said you had a number of questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I practice with shadow work myself and guided others in shadow work and read a bunch of books on shadow. And, and it's just been a, I think that's one of the geniuses, one of the things that Ken Wilber did when he put together the integral model, he made shadow such an essential part of that. Can you imagine the whole integral map without the recognition of the shadow? Right. Ah, what a bloody disaster. And, and I was listening to a talk you gave to the Theosophical Society, I believe, and you started talking about it and it just lit me up. I mean, this was new light and, and energy or something that delighted, delighted me about the way you spoke about the shadow. But is there anything, and, and maybe I'll, I'll speak, you know, that one of the tribes, and I don't even know how to hold tribes anymore at this stage, this integral stage of consciousness, but one of our groups is the integral world. Is there a part of the shadow or shadow work or understanding of the shadow that maybe we've missed somehow or not quite getting that if you could just adjust us and, or you can bring that to a larger, uh, just people in general about the shadow and our understanding psychologically and spiritually of at the moment, how could we improve our, our knowledge and our capacity to work with it? So what comes up for me is who am I to critique Ken? <laughs> I think, you know, the book Religions of Tomorrow has profound material about how the shadow hides from us in each chakra, in each level of development according to the chakras. And I found that incredibly helpful. So let me, let me just step back for a minute and kind of for people who aren't familiar with this. So shadow is a term that was coined by Carl Jung, the renowned psychiatrist in the early days of psychology, for the personal unconscious. And it's the place where we hide our forbidden, taboo, unacceptable parts and feelings and fantasies and images. I like to say the shadow is like a dark room in which our images lie dormant and shadow work is the process of bringing them back into development. And this happens as children, you know, we stash away into the shadow, whatever we don't express, it gets repressed. And we used to think that the shadow was in the mind. But we now know that, you know, body, mind, spirit is just completely one functional identity. And so there's shadow material in ourselves and everywhere there's shadow material, meaning unexpressed, unacceptable, denied content. So, you know, for me, I wrote Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality because I felt like that was a missing piece in the spiritual world. And it turned out that I was writing it during the Catholic priest sexual abuse scandal, which has continued, but that was when it was kind of coming out of the closet and it was really timely. And so I, I think that learning how to live with the human, human nature the way we're made can be really painful for all of us. It can be a struggle to recognize that the people we imagine to be more evolved or more highly spiritually developed or more emotionally developed can act out their shadows, can act out their darkness. And I think, you know, that happened a lot with teachers who were kind of transplanted from Eastern cultures and didn't know Western culture and didn't know the sexual liberation in the West and didn't know how to relate to people who communicate freely or all of the roles were changed. And so there was a lot of acting out in the 80s and 90s and even the 2000s. You know, I have a different method from Ken's method. My method is more about uncovering, it's, I would say it's more psychological, it's more about uncovering the unconscious material in the shadow and using contemplative practice to center ourselves so that we can face 
the unacceptable, difficult material and learning how to witness it, just like we learn how to witness any thought in meditation. We learn self-observation and we stop identifying with the thought or what I call the shadow character. And as we pull our identification out of it, it loses charge and it loses control over us. So it's a little bit, it's a, it's a little bit more complicated method than Ken's, but I think he's done a masterful job with integral. And Connie, does that express itself in the body when you start becoming aware of, yeah. of the issue? Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole chapter in Meeting the Shadow about how shadow material expresses itself in symptoms in the body and how we can learn how to begin to read them symbolically and understand what's been repressed and buried in the body. And Connie, I'm aware that we're coming to the end of this because, and, and you have another podcast to do yet in your, in your morning. But let me say, just, just to hold the mirror up, I, I trained to be a, a therapist also, and you must have been a wonderful therapist. I'm sure those people were really blessed by you because I feel my heart opening in your presence and I feel my armor softening. Just uh, being here with you here. And thank you for that. Thank you, John. Yes, indeed, Connie. Thank you so much. And thank you for this beautiful book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. Let's see, in the very few minutes we have left, is there one piece of information or better? Let me say that again. Is there one piece of wisdom, (laughs) an elder wisdom you'd like to give us? The world needs elders now. The world needs the compassion, the gratitude, the generosity, also the skills, the shadow awareness, the spiritual development of elders now. You know, it's a world starved for nourishment. And I really believe that some of us have the nourishment that other generations need. And I think there's real hope in intergenerational collaboration we can learn from the young people also. And my hope is that this book, you know, reaches the people who are open to it and who are looking for a rite of passage to become an elder. There are many, many practices in the book. And you can feel free to reach out to me if you read the book and you have questions. I'm available for that. So thank you. Thank you both so much. Roger, thank you for your friendship. John, thank you for having me here. I'm, I'm really grateful. Yeah, and thank you so much, Connie. And your book, The Inner Work of Age, is, is a delight. Thank you very much. It sparked a lot, and it's still sparking a lot for me, and I'm sure for many, many other people. So thank you very much. I appreciate your good work, and all best wishes for everything. Yeah, God bless you, Connie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John Roger and the Deep Transformation team.